0: When I was about 13 years old, I worked as something called a shack manager for the Vancouver Sun newspaper. I had been delivering the papers as a paper boy since I was 10 years old, and now I was responsible for overseeing a small group of paperboys. Now, being a manager of sorts, as an adolescent, may sound somewhat impressive, but if one of the paper boys didn't show up, I was responsible to deliver all the newspapers on the kid's route. I remember one afternoon, the paper boy doesn't show up. I'm given a list of the addresses on his route, and it is pouring rain. And so I throw some newspapers into the sacks, toss them into the rack on the handlebars of my bike and start delivering the papers on the route. And before long, the list of addresses becomes completely soaked. And then it dissolves into a kind of paper mache substance. And so feeling very cold and resentful and utterly exasperated, I scrunch up the piece of paper into a ball and I toss it into a ditch. And then I take all of the remaining newspapers and I toss them into the ditch as well, hoping that no one will notice. If I had had a heart and head understanding of what the Apostle Paul teaches about work in the book of Colossians, my response might have been quite different. We've been in a sermon series in the book of Colossians, and we've seen how early in the book, the Apostle Paul points out that rules based on human traditions and rules and extreme ascetic, quote, spiritual practices have no power to actually change us. The one thing that can change us is joining our lives in relationship with Christ. And when we do that, we become the caterpillar that experiences chrysalis that morphs into a butterfly. And Paul in Colossians says, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you are a new creation and therefore live into your new creation. And today we're going to look at what it looks like to live into our new creation as it relates to our everyday work, whether we're studying, working a job, working in a family setting, volunteering, whatever. Now, before we unpack this teaching about work, let me set up the context. Last week, my colleague, Ashling gave a powerful and moving sermon on what it looks like to live as a newly created person in the context of our families, households, and communities. If you were not around last week, you can catch the message online. It was a a beautiful, uplifting message. Now, the Apostle Paul, when teaching about family matters, doesn't completely destroy the traditional family structure in the Roman Empire. Unlike the philosopher Plato, The Apostle Paul doesn't advocate, for instance, that wives and children should belong to everyone in the community. No, Paul doesn't completely destroy the structure of the family in the Roman Empire, but he does offer ideas that are so radical that many people in Colossae and in the empire would not recognize these new social units as families. You see, in the first century Roman world, the husband-slash-father figure was a master with absolute power in his realm. A husband-slash-father could do pretty much anything that he wanted his family. So a husband, for example, under certain circumstances could kill his wife without any penalty. A father could sell his children into slavery with complete impunity. And a master could execute his slaves without any kind of repercussion. And in this world, the Apostle Paul says, In Colossians 4.1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, when we read or hear the word slaves, many of us have a kind of visceral reaction. When we hear the word slave, many of us would imagine someone of African origin, picking cotton in a field in the deep south in the 18th or 19th century. But slavery in Paul's ancient Mediterranean world was not based on a person's skin color, nor a person's ethnicity. If you belong to a group of people that had been defeated by Rome Then you and your people would automatically become part of the slave class. Scholars estimate that perhaps a third of the people in the Roman Empire in Paul's day were slaves. Most physicians in the empire were slaves. You know, if you're a doctor, you may be saying or thinking to yourself, boy, things haven't changed. You know, I I, I very much feel like a slave. (laughs) I'm working so much. Luke was a physician who wrote one of the Gospels. And as a physician, some scholars believe that he also was a slave. In the Roman world, unlike modern times, if you were a slave, you could work for and achieve your freedom. Now, slavery might have been different in the ancient world compared to now, but it was still wrong and it was still damaging. Slave masters could physically and sexually abuse their slaves without any kind of penalty. They could have them executed without any kind of repercussions. Slavery needed to end. Now, we don't know the details of Paul's personal views on slavery because he doesn't disclose them. But we have a sense as to his heart posture towards slavery. We get a sense in Colossians 4 verse 7 where Paul explains that as he is writing this letter to the church at Colossae from a prison in Rome, that letter will be delivered to Colossae by a man named Tychicus who will be accompanied by a man named Onesimus. Who was Onesimus? We know from scripture that Onesimus had been a slave in Colossae. For a master named Philemon, who was actually one of the leaders of the church in Colossae, Onesimus escapes. He runs away. And that would have been a crime in Paul's world considered worthy of death. But Onesimus meets Jesus. He becomes a new creation. And then Paul writes to his former slave owner, Philemon, and says, I want you to welcome Onesimus back, but not as a slave, but as a free brother. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you are a slave and you have an opportunity to take your freedom, take it. So we know that Paul favors the freedom of slaves. Why doesn't he make A radical call for slavery to be completely abolished in the empire? Well, probably in part because he's not in a position to actually do that. And probably because he knows that in order for slavery to be dismantled in the empire, because the economy is so dependent on it, it needs to happen gradually. Years from now, people will say of us, what were we thinking driving cars? What were we thinking using fossil fuels, gasoline, oils? What were we thinking using plastics? And we certainly need to wean ourselves of these things, our dependence on these things, absolutely. And it can be easy to say in principle, let's just stop using cars altogether, any kind of fossil fuels, any kind of plastics. Let's just stop right now. Sounds good. Sounds, in a way, plausible, but we know that we're dependent on these things. We need to be free of them, and that the transition probably best takes place gradually. And so it is with slavery. It needed to end, but in the empire, it would be phased out gradually. Paul goes on. He says in Colossians 3.22, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes upon you, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, being a slave in Paul's world is different from having a typical job in our own world. So that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty obvious, I think. But there are still principles that we can apply from Paul's teaching here. Many of us, obviously, none of us have masters in, in, in the sense that Paul is using the word here. And many of us don't even have a typical boss. But we do have people to whom we are accountable for our work. If we're a student, we're accountable to our teachers, Uh, We may have patients that we're accountable to. If we work in the medical field, or customers, or clients, or even members of our household. I was saying to our adolescent son not long ago that in your life, you're going to have teachers that are going to be difficult for you. And one day you'll probably have jobs where you're going to have a tough time working with, with your supervisor. Some of you are familiar with the popular TV show, The Office, of which Abraham Wu is a resident expert, among other things. And so I've I've seen just a few episodes, but um, Michael Scott is the boss in this TV show. So the, the company that he leads is fictitious. It's a paper company called Dunder Mifflin. And Michael Scott is an incompetent boss, he's indecisive, he makes promises to his team that he can't possibly keep, and when things go badly at the company, what does Michael Scott do? He hides away in his office, he blames everyone else, and then he gets himself a mug that says what? The world's best boss, and he's a terrible boss. And Paul's not saying if you have a terrible boss or you're in a very difficult classroom situation or you're experiencing abuse of some kind, he's not saying stay at all costs. He's not saying that. He says to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7, if you can find your freedom, find it, take it. But he would say if we are in a difficult work situation, or student situation, and for whatever reason we feel like we need to or are called to stay, Paul would say, remember that your work is primarily and ultimately done not for human beings, but for God. And when you recognize that you are working primarily for your creator, it will fill your work with a sense of it being noble, and it will energize you To give your best. An executive named Joe travels quite a bit, you know, especially pre-pandemic and starting to do more traveling now. Joe was saying that he was on a particular flight and he noticed that the flight crew was incredibly attentive and responsive to the passengers. So, near the end of the flight, he got into a conversation with one of the flight attendants and he said to her, you know, I do quite a bit of flying and I can honestly say that I have never seen a flight crew as enthusiastic and as responsive as as this particular crew. Well, the flight attendant got a little smile across her face and she said, well, if you really feel that way, you can thank the woman seated over in 12B. And the flight attendant sort of gestured her head in that direction. And she whispered, that woman in 12B, she is the head supervisor for all the flight attendants on this airline. <laughs> the head supervisor is on this flight. It's, so it's thanks to her that everyone is, 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 is doing their best work. <laughs> Paul is saying, look, do your best work not to curry favor with your supervisor, teacher, boss, whoever. But do your best work because you are working for the Lord, not for human masters. He says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Paul is saying, whatever it is that you do, whether you are working with patients or with computer programming or plumbing or on a construction site or raising kids, volunteering, whatever it is you're doing, do it with all your heart because what you are doing, you are doing for the Lord. Let your heart be filled with a sense of wonder and worship as you work. You know, as uh, some of you may have heard from me, during my early years of high school, I was completely unmotivated in my studies. And so I remember during French class, our French teacher, I I can't remember why, but she had to leave the classroom momentarily. And as soon as she left the classroom, I took my notebook filled with some uh, notes about class, or that I'd taken in class, and just started ripping out the pages, and cr- crumpling them up into a paper ball and uh, shooting, shooting baskets. So, I just uh, started uh, going for. I know that Gibson and Sabin like basketball, so I was practicing my, my, my shot. And then I, 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 t- I circulated uh, no paper to other students in the class. I said, hey, go ahead, make a ball and, and just practice your shot. Well, when the teacher walked into the room, uh, she was very unimpressed, to say the least. So I I wouldn't recommend doing that. Uh, Then as a teenager, I meet Jesus, and my life is changed by that relationship. And I realize that I am simply letting my brain atrophy and rot. And so I feel motivated to study not so much to get good grades, but as a way to show faithful stewardship of something God has given me. It really turned me around as a student. I eventually graduated from high school, undergrad, and I remember taking my first job in the corporate world in Tokyo for Sony. I was informally One of the folks described as a, quote, 7-11 man, meaning that my workday went from 7 in the morning till past 11 at night, including the commute time. So it was intense, and I regularly felt jet-lagged even when I was not traveling. (laughs) It was tough at times, but when I remembered that I was doing my work primarily for the Lord, it filled my work with a sense of meaning, and it inspired me to give my best. Some of you would know Jared Penner. He's part of our Mount Pleasant faith community. He was at the weekend away. Uh, Jared shared with me recently that to his surprise, a red maple tree in front of his home has actually shaped the way he does his everyday work. Back in 2009, Jared moved to Vancouver to study theology at Regent College with the intention of becoming a pastor. But during his third year there, while he was in class, he received a phone call from the BC Health Authority, and someone on the other end of the line asked him, would you take a job as a computer programmer with us? Now, that was Jared's background in computer program, but but, but he wasn't anticipating this call But as he thought about it, and he prayed about it, he actually felt God was leading him to accept this job. Fast forward, the pandemic hits, and Jared is still working for the BC Provincial Health Authority, but now as a team leader for a group of software developers. As the COVID cases begin to dramatically mount, Jared is tapped on the shoulder, metaphorically speaking, and he is asked to lead a team that will support contact tracing for the entire province of British Columbia. And as team leader, Jared is responsible for ensuring that all the COVID numbers are reported to Bonnie Henry. And he feels overwhelmed by the magnitude of this work. Jared shared with me that Whenever he could, while working at home, he would try to take a little break around lunch hour, have something to eat, and he would sit on his balcony staring at this red maple tree. And then Jared said, he wrote to me, one afternoon, it struck me, God loves that red maple tree. It seems to do very little. It stands in place, reaches and grows, and yet God loves it. Jared says, it was as though God were telling me, you don't have to do anything either. You could stand there like that tree and I would already fully love you. Jared thought, perhaps my work for the Lord is less about what I am doing and more about who I am being while I do it. Jared shared, I realized how inspired I am by others who I see at work that are under great pressure, carrying heavy responsibility, and yet are quick to share a joyful comment or a word of light encouragement. Like trees, the joy they generate is invisible, but it has a wide influence. Jared says, I want to be that too. I want to have grace in my heart so that I can bring grace to my team. It may sound silly, but one of my offerings to God is to keep my camera on during Zoom meetings. I want to be quick with a smile to remember others and to stay positive even when our work is frustrating and difficult. Whatever I am doing, I pray that God would transform my being so that I might work for him with all my heart. Whatever I do, I pray that my work would join that of so many others, breathing God's grace and helping to transform his kingdom. And so a red maple tree in front of his house inspires Jared not only to do great work, but to reflect the grace of Jesus Christ as he works. Beautiful. Now, you don't need to have a provincial portfolio to do meaningful work. You don't necessarily need to have a high-profile, highly-paid job to do work that matters. Think about Jesus for a moment. When we think about his work, we do tend to think of his teaching as a rabbi, but he only did that for about three years, from age 30 to 33. From his adolescence to about age 30, Jesus worked as a day laborer and as a carpenter. What kind of work do you think Jesus did as a carpenter? Justin Martyr was a well-known scholar in the second century who grew up just over the hill where Jesus had been raised. And in the second century, Justin Martyr said they were still using the plows and the yokes that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, and Jesus had made. Jesus built plows and yokes that were built to last. He did quality work with his hands. Because he knew that he wasn't working primarily for his earthly father, Joseph. I don't think they had fathers that, you know, back then in the same way. But he was working first and foremost for his father in heaven. And therefore, his ordinary work of making things like plows and yokes was done with all his heart. And he produced great craftsmanship, great work. And so it is with us, you know, no matter what it is we're doing, whether it's in a typical job, in a household, at school, if we recognize that the work we do is done unto the Lord, it will fill our work with a sense of meaning, and we will offer our very best as an act of worship. Paul also goes on to say, Work with all your heart for the Lord and not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Slaves in Paul's ancient world by law could not receive any inheritance financial or property wise or otherwise. And so when the slaves would have heard these words from Paul, that you work for God, you do your work as unto the Lord, you will receive an inheritance, that would have been stunning and great news for them. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that regardless of what you do, you know, you're working in engineering or on a construction site or medicine or, or peeling potatoes, that for the next six months, Your job will be to sweep the streets and keep them clean, okay? That's going to be your job for the next six months. Now, I want you to imagine how much money you could anticipate making doing that. Just have a figure in mind, a rough figure. And then your supervisor comes to you and says, for six months of sweeping, at the end of that time, you will receive $100 million, by the way, this is just an illustration, not an offer on hand here, in case you were wondering. Uh, now, even if you don't consider yourself motivated by money, knowing that you would make a hundred million at the end of that time would probably put a little spring in your step and a, a, a little bit of vigor in your sweep, right? You probably would want to go for it. Paul says, if you are doing your work, whatever it is for the Lord, one day, Regardless of your status, you will receive an inheritance from him. We don't know what it is, but it will be great beyond imagining. It will include, but encompass more than Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Part of the inheritance and reward from the Lord will also include some kind of significant, meaningful work for us in the world to come. We'll be working in the new heaven and the new earth. Some of us perhaps have visions of being in the world to come and swinging gently in a hammock between trees and maybe looking up and seeing blue skies and cumulus clouds and every once in a while a chubby toddler flying by with a harp. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests this picture. That's an artist's very liberal rendering of an imagination of heaven, which doesn't align with scripture, by the way. According to Jesus... In the world to come, we will be working. In a parable in Luke 19, Jesus said, if you are faithful with little on earth, including money, one day you will be ruling over cities in a world to come. The, 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 the word for cities might be metaphor, it might be literal, we don't, we don't know, but we will have meaningful work in the world to come. That will be part of our inheritance and reward for serving the Lord now through our work. And then finally, insofar as this message is concerned, part of the reward for living and working before the face of God is just that we get to live and work before the face of God. One of my favorite movies is the old classic Chariots of Fire based on the true story of two runners from Great Britain that were competing in the 1924 Paris Olympic Games. Eric Little was one of those runners who hailed from Scotland. He was one of the finest runners of his day. His sister Jenny, as portrayed in the movie, wanted her brother Eric to completely leave competitive running. She felt that his running was getting in the way of his, quote, service to the Lord. She wanted Eric to stop running, move to China, and join his family there and serve as a missionary. And in one scene in the movie, Eric is talking to his sister Jenny. And he says, Jenny, I've decided to go back to China I've been accepted by the mission. And Jenny is just overjoyed, as we say today. She's just over the moon. But then Eric interjects and says, but Jenny, I've got a lot of running to do between now and then. And he says, Jenny, I know that God made me for China, that he made me for a purpose, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Eric didn't say, I only feel God's pleasure when I'm doing something overtly spiritual, like serving as a missionary in China. He said, as I run through the hilly landscape and countryside of Scotland, when I do this very ordinary thing, I also feel his pleasure. And whether we are delivering Newspapers for the Vancouver Sun, and I needed this message from Paul years ago. Whether we are supporting contact tracing here in BC, whether we are carpenters working on construction sites, peeling potatoes, whether we are raising kids, whether we are studying, no matter what our work, if we do our work before the face of God, Our work will be filled with greater meaning. We will be energized to do our best. And like Eric Little, we will feel God's pleasure. Let's pray together. Think about your work, Uh, your ordinary everyday work, whether it's Studying or working at a company or in a home setting or somewhere else as a volunteer. If you'd like, perhaps pray, Lord, help me to do my work for you. Help me to do this work and perhaps name it for you. And then perhaps pray and find a practice like Jared's where you sit in contemplation of creation or in silence or in the word and can pray as Jared prayed. God, fill me with your grace so that I can offer your grace to others. If you'd like, pray this in your heart. Lord, fill me with your grace so that I can offer your grace to others. And may it be so for each of us. In the name of the Jesus who worked for his Father in heaven. Amen.